testing technique. Let's try and get some people in during the festival and then offend you. Um, actually, there is something in us which secretly quite likes to be offended. There's a few reasons for that. I think one, uh, there's a kind of self-righteousness in us that likes the smugness of looking down on someone who's offended us. You felt that? Actually, we quite like looking down on those who have hurt us or annoyed us. Um, so we actually prepare for and expect to, and sometimes even get offended on behalf of other people who aren't offended themselves. Have you been there? The other reason we don't mind being offended is a kind of self-serving offensiveness. As some of you don't mind going to a restaurant hoping that the waitress will do something wrong so that you can then complain and get drinks on the house. Or going on a flight and hoping that they mess something up that offends you and you get an upgrade. There is a kind of self-service behind the secret love of being offended sometimes. But then also there's a third category, which is quite prevalent in the Edinburgh Festival, if you look through the program or whatever. It seems that gratuitous offense is actually the funniest thing in the world at the moment. That you'll actually pay money to someone for them to offend you in some comedy show. Whether it's a foreigner coming and telling us Scots how ridiculous we are and how depressed we are and how stupid our accent and the fact that we wear kilts and all this kind of thing. We don't mind being offended by other people because actually uh, it means we're the center of attention and we're quite like that. Um, When it comes to the offensiveness of the Bible, that is less of a secret love. It's more of an open secret. Uh, The Telegraph published an article not too long ago, the 10 most offensive verses in the Bible. Uh, Let me give you some that they chose. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, which talks about women being forbidden from teaching in church. 1 Samuel 15, which seems to endorse genocide. Psalm 137, which seems to celebrate horrible revenge. Romans 1, and its teaching on homosexuality. Genesis 22, that commands a father to sacrifice his son. And Ephesians 5, which tells wives to submit. Here are some of the verses that the Telegraph deems to be the most offensive in this book, the Bible. You could go elsewhere. There are other options. Uh, You could go to the words of Jesus himself. Could read Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus himself says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. There's an edge to that, isn't there? There's an offensiveness to that. But what I want to say this morning is that if you have these verses in your head when you think the offensiveness of the Bible, you're actually only at the edge of one of the relatively minor leaves on the tree of biblical offense. And I want you to take you to the very root of that tree this morning, to what is probably the most offensive verse in the whole of the Bible. You don't have to trawl through Leviticus. You don't have to read all 150 Psalms. You don't have to read all the letters of the Apostle Paul. You open your Bible to page one, Book 1, chapter 1, verse 1. Genesis 1, verse 1 reads this. You can find it in your pew Bibles on page 3. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens 
and the earth. That verse and what it implies is offensive if you're coming from any other worldview than the worldview that begins there. If you're walking life on a worldview based on another deity or on the fact that there is no deity, the implications of this verse are horrendously offensive. And what I want to do this morning is walk you through six of them very quickly uh, to show you some of the offense. All right, six quick things. Number one, God is God and you are not. What is comfortable for us to believe about life? Well, probably that we are autonomous, that we're indiv- that we are, uh, an individual that no one can tell us what to do or how to live. We like the fact that we are self-defining, independent, and unaccountable. That's comfortable, isn't it? What Genesis 1 verse 1 implies is that you are created and therefore accountable to the Creator. That you are designed by the Creator and therefore defined by the Creator. If your existence was purposed by Him, then the very purpose of your existence is for Him. You're not the Lord of your life, but there is a Lord who is another, the Creator God. Let me give you an image to explain that. The Bible image for this is the potter and clay. Which are you? We think, give me an image that you know, makes me feel good and is strong and assertive. That's the image I want for describing who I am. The Bible says clay. Compared to a potter, we're but clay. God is God. We're not. Second implication There are no other gods. What's comfortable as we negotiate our way through the many approaches of life? Well, I guess that we're tolerant, that we're accepting, that we're inclusive, that we're open-minded. What does Genesis 1 verse 1 implies? He is God. There is no other. He is God. There is none like him. Allah, Muhammad, Brahman, Buddha, any of the other deities, they are no gods at all. What's the biblical image that it gives for these other gods? They're dead. They're lifeless. They're nothing. They're ignorant. They're deaf. And they're mute. It's offensive. Third thing, you are not the measure of good and evil. Again, what is comfortable for you running your life? I think it runs on two planes. One, we have a pronounced public morality. That is what we think you should live your life by and what would generally be okay for everyone trying to live together. And so we have a kind of public pronounced morality. This is what I think is right and wrong. That will serve us well. But in truthfulness, we have a baseline private morality that's slightly lower than our public expectation. Who we are behind closed doors is actually probably a lower level than what we would like for everyone else. That's comfortable. What's the implication of Genesis 1 verse 1? Morality is not determined by your own individual desires. It is not determined by the vote of a democracy 
but it is as eternal, as unchanging as the character of the uncreated creator. As the creator, he has justice as his right. And therefore, what is good and what is evil, what is right or what is wrong, is determined only by him. What's the image that the boy would put on that? It is a judgment seat. It is a judgment day. That one day, as in the language of Genesis 3, God will come and he will ask you two questions. Where are you? What is this you have done? And he will hold us to account. Fourth thing, the offensiveness of Genesis 1 verse 1. Living for created things stores up the creator's wrath. Let me ask you two questions. Where do you find your identity and what are you serving? Um, If you were to ask the question, well, my purpose and my meaning and my existence is uh, where? What could I not cope with losing? It's probably where you're finding your identity. What about what are you serving? Where's your money? Where's your time? Where are your emotions? What are they invested in? Maybe lots of different things. Maybe family, maybe career, maybe money, maybe fame. Genesis 1 verse 1 says that if your identity is found in anything other than the creator in whose image you were made, that is wickedness. That if what you are serving is anything other than the creator God, that is wickedness. What's the biblical image for this? It is of an exchange. We have exchanged the creator for his creation. We take the creator's gifts and we exchange them for him. It was my birthday a few weeks ago. One of the things my wife gave me was a nice jumper. It's lovely. I like it a lot. But imagine if I was so thrilled with this jumper that what I decided to do was to take my wife to the shop where she bought it and say to the sales assistant I love the jumper so much can I swap my wife for another jumper now what is wrong with that lots of things you should be offended by that because I've mistaken the giver for the gift my praise and my thanks should go to Sarah and not just lusting for more of the gifts and yet what we do when we ignore the creator and just indulge and enjoy some of the good things he's given us, the Bible says is wickedness. Fifth thing, your life is vanity in light of eternity. What's a comfortable way to live your life? The motto of today is YOLO, isn't it? You only live once. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you might die. This is offensive because it says YOLO is a lie. There was an eternity before the beginning that Genesis 1 verse 1 talks about. There will be an eternity beyond your death. Your life is momentary. It is vanity. It is gone like that. Meaningless. There is an eternity. What's the biblical image that the Bible would put on this. Again, we want to think, right, if the Bible's going to compare me to something, make it something that's going to be remembered, something that will endure. 
the Bible says you are like the grass of the field. You're like a flower that is there one day and the next day it perishes. It's not you only live once, but actually what you do in this life of vanity will determine your eternity. Sixth thing, just to put the final nail in the offensive coffin, the Bible says you are a fool. A life lived on any other foundation in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, the Bible would say is foolishness. Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now you might be thinking, what is this? You know, I came to church thinking at least I might get brownie points for trying. You know, at least I'm investigating. And I come away and you're just calling me a fool. What is that? And so maybe you're default is to say, well, because of the offensiveness of Christianity, because they've just confirmed everything that I thought, I'm going to default to atheism. You know, it's not going to be a measured examination of the evidence and going through the data and deciding that I'm an atheist. It's just, I don't want that, so I'll default here. And I think that's quite common. Uh, Dawkins and Hitchens have kind of rode the tide of popular atheism and so most of us would default there and we think I can get rid of the offensiveness of Christianity and just plumb my life here right what I want to say to you is actually to do that is only to swap one set of offensive implications for another there's a great writer who writes for the um, a journalist who writes for the Telegraph called Brendan O'Neill he's good with the pen he's good to read This week he wrote an article called How Atheists Became the Most Colossally Smug and Annoying People on the Planet. Before you laugh, Brendan O'Neill is an atheist. He's writing as a convinced, persuaded atheist. And yet he very incisively writes this. Atheism merely signals what you don't believe in, not what you do believe in. It's a negative, and therefore basing your entire worldview on it is bound to generate immense amounts of of negativity. We're back to that idea of identity. If you find your identity in the negativity of atheism, it will result in a very negative outlook on life. I think that's why we've moved from the time of saying it's not only uncool to believe in a God, but it is actually now cool to ridicule those who do believe. It's very negative. But Brendan O'Neill is not aggressive against atheism, just this particular strand of atheism because of its negativity. But I would challenge Brendan O'Neill and say, actually, the negativity and the offensiveness of atheism comes from more than just its title, and it comes from the resultant implications. Let me give you four things about the offensiveness of the conclusions of atheism. No truth, no no meaning, no good, no evil, uh, and no meaning. Sorry, no freedom is the second one. Quickly then, no truth. If we plumb for atheism, we're admitting that we cannot even trust our own ability to know what is true. Uh, Let me read to you from Charles Darwin. The horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which have developed from the mind of lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. Do you see where following Darwin ends you up? In doubting the fact that there can be any truth at all. Uh, Second thing, no freedom. 
what we are, what we want, what we do is just a product of our genes and our environment. Let me read you again from Nietzsche. The acting man's delusion about himself, his assumption that free will exists, is part of the calculating mechanism. What Nietzsche says there is if you plumb for atheism, thinking that there you will find freedom, that's actually another lie. He says that actually, if you believe in atheism, then everything that you are and everything you do is not free, but only the result of your genes and every other consequence and the process up until that point. It's not freedom. It's enslavery. Another implication, no good and no evil. Um, These labels are merely uh, genetic and culturally developed ideas that we put on random events. One author that we had this week said, if you go for atheism, then genocide is no different from a solar eclipse. It is just the movement of atoms. Uh, Richard Dawkins in his book, uh, sorry, in an interview once said, if someone used my views to justify a completely self-centered lifestyle, which involved trampling over all other people in the way to their choice, I would be fairly hard pushed to argue on purely intellectual grounds that that was not right. Fourth thing, no meaning. If we're just a collection of atoms in a cosmos full of them, how can you say that you're any more significant than the pew on which you sit? Uh, Another writer, Jim Watson, well, I don't think we're here for anything. We're just the products of evolution. There might be implications that are offensive in regards to Christianity, but swapping Christianity for atheism on the basis of what is offensive actually doesn't work. The implications of both are pretty rough at a tertiary reading. What I want to say this morning is, actually, if you compare those two implications, one of them makes far more sense of your existence and your experience than the other. The depth of the emotion that you feel for a loved one. The intensity of love that you feel for a family member. The depth of justice or injustice that you know within you when you see something that is wicked happening. That doesn't chime with the fact that there is no truth, no freedom, no good, no evil, no meaning. That is inconsistent with what you know to be true deep down. And actually, I think deep down there is far more in you that would say there is something within me which yearns for eternity. There is something in me which is deeply dissatisfied with just finding my joy in created things. There is an emptiness which is longing for more. See, when Genesis 1 verse 1 says in the beginning, it is pointing to an end. The Bible beginning to end is the story of Jesus Christ. You read the story on and you see that in the person of Jesus Christ, the uncreated creator enters his creation. There is purpose, there is meaning in this world. And it comes in the person of Jesus. The uncreated creator enters his creation. But this next stage of the drama is interesting. Because once again, 
the creation is offended by the creator. You might conclude, yeah, Jesus, good moral teacher. I want my kids to be brought up in Sunday school. That sounds good basis for life. How do you explain the fact that from the moment he was born, there were death threats and plots to take his life? How do you explain the fact that in his teaching, people walked away because it was too hard? How do you explain that the leaders of his own people group nailed him to a tree? See, when the creator entered the creation, once again, the creation was offended. And so they nailed him to a tree. But actually, the cross of Jesus is more than just a hate crime of humanity. It is actually the love of the creator. Because on that cross, God is actually acting in power and in love to save. It is interesting that in Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul speaks of the offense of the cross. The cross is offensive. It serves a purpose. At the beginning, we thought of our own self-righteousness and our own self-service. One of the purposes of the cross, one of the offenses of the cross is that it says, do you know what? Your own righteousness is not up to much. You've not attained to your own standard of morality. You've not kept up even to your baseline private morality. And you've certainly fallen short of God's standard. But the cross shows something more than that. It shows actually you cannot even help yourself. Self-service is not what the cross is about. It is not a self-help manual. Rather, it shows that the creator has to enter his creation. The God of eternity has to enter time. The God who is big has to come in the person of his son. The God who is life has to die that you might know life. See, the offense of the cross is first it shows you your righteousness is not up to much. It shows you that there's nothing you can do to help yourself. But then amazingly, it shows you that the power and the love of God is seen in that he would send his son to die the death that you deserved and to grant newness of life. The first step to understanding true Christianity is to be offended by the cross of Jesus. Though it wounds your autonomy and it attacks your pride, it sabotages your conscience, it uncovers your past, past, and it challenges the way you have lived your entire life. Actually, when you understand it correctly, you recognize that it makes sense of your emptiness, it relieves your restlessness, it alleviates your guilt, and it grants you true life. What would transform a Jamie Hughes or a Charlene? What's brought that difference, that complete transformation? They came to the point where they were offended by the cross because it showed them that they were guilty, deserving of God's wrath. But more than that, that they understand that because the creator Jesus died on the cross in their place, they can know life to the full and a life of the forgiveness of sins. Maybe today, um, you are massively offended by the message of the Bible. I wonder if the intensity of your offense maybe reveals something of the truthfulness of the claim. 
actually there is a war going in with you that is battling against this. That might not be a reason to disbelieve. It may actually be part of the proof that shows it's actually true. If you're offended by this, um, can I encourage you to investigate it? If it's not true, it's not worth being offended by it. You might as well just ignore it. But can I encourage you not just to go with the flow of popular atheism and ride that tide based on a whim? Can I encourage you to investigate the person of Jesus and to see actually the offensiveness of his cross is the power and the uniqueness of the Christian gospel? It is the power to save and to transform a life for eternity. That's what we're seeing in the baptisms this morning. We're going to sing a great hymn, uh, To God Be the Glory. Uh, When it comes to uh, the baptisms, Jamie and Charlene, it is not saying well done to them. Uh, It is not saying congratulations.